it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to episode number 39 of the Death of Journalism podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I am your host. Later on in this episode, a major security breach on racism at ESPN and some thoughts on the conservative adulation for Chris Rock and his big Netflix special. But first, the biggest story of the week, maybe longer than that by far, at least in the media realm, and that is Tucker Carlson and his January 6th videotapes, which were given to him by the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. Now, this is a very complex story, and I'll make a confession right off the top of this. I hate this story. Everyone in this story is partially right, at least. Everyone is at least partially wrong. The truth is murky. There are no good results except ironically for maybe Donald Trump, at least in this most recent chapter. And I'm conflicted all over the place. I'm conflicted even on Tucker Carlson himself. I used to briefly work for Tucker Carlson many years ago uh, when he owned The Daily Caller. I, I kind of like him. I don't love him. I think he's very smart. I think he's funny. I think he's by far the smartest guy doing what he does on television. But I also think that he has gotten enamored with conspiracy theories. I'm not sure if it's real or if it's for show. As we'll get into later on in this episode, there's some new revelations in the Dominion voting systems lawsuit that indicate that he despises Donald Trump, which does not surprise me at all, which is partially why I like Tucker. He and I communicate on a, I wouldn't say a regular basis, but fairly regular basis, usually via text. And so I respect him to some degree, and I was very interested in what he was going to do with this. And the reaction to what Tucker did this past Monday on Fox News Channel, where he did his entire show, basically, I would say, creating a counter narrative to the conventional wisdom about the January 6th attacks on the day that the presidential election was supposed to be finally 100% certified and that uh, Joe Biden was going to be made the next president of the United States. Obviously, we all know that there was some sort of uh, disturbance, riot, insurrection, protest, maybe a little bit of all those things. Even that, I, this is partially why I hate this story. I don't even know what to call it because it was clearly bad. All right. This is the part that as a, as a conservative, even though I'm obviously not a Trump supporter, it really bothers me that conservatives now have to try to minimize or rationalize that what happened that day wasn't horrendous, regardless of the details. And the details do matter, okay? I'm a detail guy. We're going to get into some of the details on this because Tucker has some interesting and I think significant points to be made, but it got lost in this larger issue of the idea that somehow what happened January 6th really wasn't bad. It was bad no matter how you cut it, no matter how you slice it, all right? This was, uh, 
This was an embarrassment for the country and for the Republican Party. And uh, if the other side had done this with 1,000% certitude, that would be the perspective of every conservative in the country, that this is outrageous. This is not behavior, regardless of whether or not people belonged in jail or to what extent they belonged in jail and how much damage was done. That's all a reasonable debate. But you cannot debate that the essence of what occurred there was bad. How bad? All right, that's an interesting discussion. But it was bad. It was wrong. All right? So I start off from that position. This was a bad thing that occurred. I realize it sounds very simplistic, but it was bad, and it looked really, really bad, and it was not American. It was not consistent with the principles of what the Republican Party, at least, or conservatism, whatever the hell that is in this day and age, used to be about. All right, so with that said, I want to get into some of the details here because there are basically, I would say, five people that Tucker really focused on, or at least should be the focus of this kind of discussion. And unfortunately, the first one, Tucker didn't really have anything on. See, to me, this story really should be focusing, if you want to do a counter-narrative on January 6th, the counter-narrative really ought to be about the one person who was killed that day, all right? I mean, obviously, that's the the ultimate bad result, someone dying directly because of what occurred that day. And there's only one person that we know for sure with 100% certitude died that day because of what happened. And that was Ashley Babbitt, who was a Trump supporter who was there protesting. And there's video of her, whatever you want to call it, killing, murder, whatever, whatever it was, she was shot and killed. Right? And it's horrific. Now, the circumstances leading up to that and whether or not it was justified in any way, shape, or form are still at least a little bit murky. And unfortunately, Tucker Carlson didn't have anything really new to provide because apparently there was no video in the 40,000 plus hours of this. He says there's no video which creates any new information regarding her death. But to me, that's always been the key part of this. I mean, can we can can somebody on the left please acknowledge and this is why we don't trust anybody anymore. Can you if someone on the left me, in the left media was to simply acknowledge the very basic and obvious fact that if Ashley Babbitt had been a black woman instead of a white woman and had been protesting on behalf of some civil rights cause or alleged civil rights cause and a white police officer under these circumstances had shot and killed her and there was video of it and there was no evidence that she had done anything to directly endanger anybody and she didn't have a weapon or anything like that. If that had been the case, is there anybody who seriously believes that the media would not have treated this story a hundred percent differently? I mean, and a hundred percent is probably being kind I mean, this would be a story that would be bigger than George Floyd under those circumstances, especially if the political cause was one that that liberals liked, that the woman was protesting on behalf of. But instead, most of America doesn't even know who Ashley Babbitt is. And so I was disappointed that there was no apparently new information to shed some more light on that, because even to me, I'm still to this day 
kind of like, there has to be something more to that story. I just can't believe that that happened. And even in today's media environment, that the media just has ignored it. And, 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 and many on the left, I see this all the time, where leftists on Twitter not just justify the killing, they take joy. In, I mean, literally, they take joy in the killing of Ashley Babbitt, which is just disgusting. And then there's this incredibly, and this is partially why I hate this story. There's this story of this guy, Ray Epps, who many on the right and the Trump, uh, you know, the Trump cult, they believe that he was an agent, federal agent, and that he was there to try to get people to storm the Capitol. And uh, his behavior was weird. And Tucker has video that indicates that he may have lied in his testimony and, you know, it is obvious that he has at least acknowledged, maybe even bragged about trying to facilitate people or encourage people to do what they did, although he himself did not take part in the actual breaching of the Capitol. And it's all weird. And, and you know, he has not been charged with anything. In fact, he's been treated very well by the January 6th committee. And, of course, in the mines of those who are in the so-called right or the Trump right. This is evidence that this is all a setup, right? And and Tucker, and I don't like this because this is where Tucker gets too enamored with conspiracies. Tucker played footsie with the entire this was all an inside job theory during his original Monday night show on this. He doesn't come out and say it. He implies it a couple times. He gives the the conspiracy people just enough to where they can say, well, you know, Tucker couldn't say it all, but it was out there. It was there. You know, you, you just got to you know, read the tea leaves. You, you just got to, you know, follow the trail and it's there. He, he just wasn't allowed to say it. And he doesn't say it with regard to Ray Epps, but he allows the conspiracy nuts to have a field day because he apparently has video. And again, I don't know if this is true or not. It is interesting that if he has video showing that Ray Epps was not where he said he was during his testimony. Well, why would you lie about that? Of course, there's also the potential, and I again, this is just a potential scenario here, that this guy was just bragging about his role in all this and got embarrassed about it and didn't want to admit what he really did and what he didn't do. That, that's that's a possibility here. It's, it's just the Occam's, Ray, Occam's Razor scenario with regard to Ray Epps as opposed to there being some sort of giant conspiracy to create a riot on the Capitol, which I don't even fully understand, you know, how would that would work or what the motivation for that would be or how they would know this was going to turn out this way. Because obviously it's turned out to be a great issue for the left. You could argue that the left didn't win the midterm elections in 2022, but they didn't lose it the way they should have in large part because of this day. And I have said continually that the Democratic Party and the media and even some Republicans have completely overplayed their hand with regard to what actually occurred on January 6th. It was horrible, but they've made this into almost a religious holiday. And they've done so for obvious political purposes. All right. So this is, again, I hate this story. I'm probably the only one in America that's in the middle of all this. I'm, I'm on almost no side. There's no good guys in this story. Nobody has this exactly right. Uh, but there were, were some important and interesting questions that were raised by Tucker Carlson, ones that the media should at least take seriously. 
And I think one of those is surrounding the so-called QAnon Charmin, Jacob Chansley. He's the guy who probably got the most publicity in the whole thing. He was wearing the buffalo helmet or whatever you want to call it, and the face paint and looked like a you know a Halloween costume. And this is a guy who was eventually sentenced almost four years in prison for his role in the so-called insurrection. Well, Tucker has video that's very odd. Uh, a lot of it of Chansley being led around the Capitol by Capitol Hill police. Now he describes it as if he is being given a tour. And I agree that if you want to look at it that way, that's possible. That's that's what's happening. We don't have audio. We just have the video. It's also consistent with the situation where the police are keeping an eye on this guy and they don't want to cause a disturbance. They don't want to escalate things. So they're following him, making sure he doesn't do anything crazy. Uh, but, but they also don't want to, you know, like I said, escalate the situation. I don't know. But there are multiple potential interpretations of that video. But here's the thing. And this is something that, to my recollection, Tucker doesn't even mention. Yeah, Chansley was sentenced to almost four years in prison, which seems outrageous based upon the video that is shown on Fox News Channel, but he pled guilty. Now, that doesn't mean he is guilty, especially in a politically charged prosecution. I'm very fully aware, especially in a situation involving Penn State and Joe Paterno and Gary Schultz and Tim Curley and Graham Spanier and Jerry Zandusky, that when you have a situation that is politically charged, where the media is completely against you and the judges are completely against you. Because remember, this is Washington, D.C. These are all liberal judges that are in charge of this. And this is obviously a very politically charged topic that you might get forced into taking a plea deal that you wouldn't ordinarily, even if you thought you were innocent. But that's a pretty significant pleading of guilty. And I think that demands an explanation. And this is where, to me, I always talk about, okay, there oftentimes what doesn't happen is as significant as what does happen. And what I did not see on Tucker Carlson or anywhere else, and I did look for it, is any uh, interview with Chansley's attorney screaming bloody murder. Now, if it's out there, I, I somehow missed it, but I don't think I would do, I would miss it because you would think this would be big news. Chansley's attorney screaming bloody murder as to why they didn't have access to this video and where's their appeal. Now that, I would be surprised, actually, if that didn't happen, just because of the politics of it, and you got nothing to lose. So I'm, I would, I would expect that Chancellor probably would appeal, but I would also expect that if there was something really earth-shattering here, that we would be hearing it from Chancellor's attorney, because for one thing, he would be easily given national media coverage, especially on Fox News Channel, especially on Tucker's show, as to the outrageousness of what occurred to his client. And so what I'm suggesting is that there's there might be something else there that we either don't have or that Tucker didn't show us. Again, I agree that the video involving Chansley makes it the the four almost four year sentence look absurd. And so, you know, I, I think that Tucker had a good point on that, but I'm not completely convinced yet for the reasons that I just stated. Then there's this issue of the Capitol Hill police officer, Brian Sicknick, who died, and it was reported that he died 
because protesters hit him over the head with a fire extinguisher. Now, that was later retracted by the New York Times. Now, of course, the retraction never gets anywhere near as much play as the initial report, especially something as dramatic as this, that helped create the narrative. The, the, the Sicknick report helped create the narrative that protesters killed police, which is incredibly powerful and obviously uh, very, very negative when it comes to how people are going to perceive what happened here. It also, in my mind, overshadowed the Ashley Babbitt situation. Let's pretend that nobody else died that day or around that day or near that day, and especially if they were not police officers or law enforcement officials, then that would have created, by, you know, by simply omission, far more focus on the Ashley Babbitt situation. But that didn't happen because it was the Brian Sicknick death that got so much publicity. Well, we know, we already knew before the, the Tucker Carlson report that he was not killed via a fire extinguisher by protesters. We also know he didn't die that day. What we didn't know is that there's video of him looking very vigorous and perfectly fine, uh, time-stamped after when it was originally reported that he died. Now, I don't know. I wish Tucker would have gotten deeper into the timeline of that and how we know that and how sure we are of that and Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Because I'm not sure what the significance of that is. I mean, we already knew that he didn't die that day. He died, I think, the next day, apparently of a stroke. Now, his family is exercised, uh, understandably, about his death, but also about Tucker Carlson's report. And that got a lot of media coverage. But it's my understanding that they're suing. And so... They have a, a very strong financial self-interest for the conventional wisdom of this thing to be real. They want his death, financially at least, to be as connected to the insurrection as possible because that's where the money is. Now, why he died of a stroke, I don't know. I mean, there's speculation that there were things that happened that day, you know, gases that he may have been exposed to or something that occurred during the quote-unquote insurrection that may have caused his death. I don't know that. I don't think anybody knows that. It's an awfully weird coincidence. I mean, you know, I, I think that it's not illogical to say that indirectly he died because of something that happened 
that day on January 6th of 2020. But we don't know that. And as I'm going to get to momentarily, his death, I think, opened the door to this completely false narrative that there were five law enforcement officials who died at the because of the so-called insurrection, which is just flat out false. And so this is why false stories and false narratives are so powerful, because once you establish them, it's far easier to keep building on those false narratives. Oh, a police officer was killed by protesters. So that means that they were being violent enough to kill a police officer. And so it's if you buy one, it's much easier to buy five. And once you buy five, now you got a real, you got a legitimate riot slash insurrection. So that's the Brian Sicknick situation, uh, which he, I don't think Tucker is, is uh, getting fair treatment on that one because I don't think he said anything that was inaccurate. It's just more of the 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 left and the and the media is just like, oh, how dare you besmirch Brian Sicknick? He didn't do anything to besmirch Brian Sicknick. He's just trying to establish, hey, by the way, he was alive when uh, you know the media and the New York Times told you he had already been killed by protesters, which appears to be true and at least somewhat relevant. Then there's the Josh Hawley situation. He's the Senator from Missouri, a guy who's a very strong conservative, and um, he got mocked uh, during the the January 6th committee hearings because it, there was video of him being shown running uh, away from this uh, this very uh, you know dangerous situation that, uh, you know, I guess Republicans were trying to say were, was not really that dangerous. And it was the implication was that he was a coward. And this was this was not even hidden very well at all. And the video seemingly indicated, okay, here, well, you know, here he is running away from danger. Run away, run away, run away. That was that was the whole narrative surrounding Josh Hawley. Well, Tucker Carlson convinced convincingly puts out video that I think is significant that shows, by the way, um, Hawley was not the only one in that group that was running away in exactly the same fashion. In fact, he was at the back of the pack, and that the video was obviously selectively edited, if not manipulated, to make Holly look bad. And, it's, and and while that's not a big deal in and of itself, it shows the motivation of the media as well as the January 6th committee. And it's consistent with this, this theory that I have that they completely overplayed their hand with regard to what the facts were. And it was mostly politically based. It wasn't really about getting to the truth. It was about using January 6th as a political weapon. So those are the the major points. I think the biggest mistake that that Tucker Carlson makes is that he he decides to, and I don't think he did this as much as the left is pretending, but he does basically come to this conclusion that the whole thing was a lie, that it really wasn't that bad at all, and that the vast majority of people didn't do anything wrong, and that they were there on what they perceived to be a tourist trip, a tourist excursion. Uh, I mean, he even uses those those words, and that I have a problem with. Um, First of all, when you have 40-some thousand hours of video, obviously, inherently almost, anything you use is going to be accused of cherry-picking, because it is going to be (laughs) cherry-picking. And in a situation like this, 
where you have 40 some thousand hours, you're always going to be able to find video of the crowd doing nothing and looking like tourists. I agree that Tucker Carlson showed video of a lot of these people appearing to be tourists after they breached the Capitol through an entrance they were not allowed in, where windows were broken, where police were overwhelmed, uh, and they were in places where they should not have been. And let's be clear, the timing of this matters. The fact that this occurred exactly as the presidential election was supposed to be certified. So they're disturbing and incredibly, mostly symbolic, but still important uh, moment in in the, the the Congress and and the in American history, where here we are, we are officially designating Joe Biden as the forty sixth president. Now, Donald Trump had created this totally bogus narrative that there was still something substantive to be decided on January sixth. This crackpot theory that. Vice President Mike Pence could somehow stop the certification, which Pence realized he didn't have the power to do. He even had to go to Dan Quayle, which was amazing, to to get verification that he didn't have the power to do that, former Vice President Dan Quayle. And so January 6th was supposed to be ceremonial. But the point here is that the timing of this is, is important when evaluating the context of the breaching of the Capitol. It's not just a normal day is what I'm trying to say. And that I think is important for understanding why this was so wrong, but you're always going to be able to find when you have, you know, over a thousand people do something, some of them aren't going to be involved directly in the violence. And I get that that's powerful video. Oh, wow. Wait a minute. This is the, this is the horrible insurrection you're showing us people just milling around, you know, acting like tourists. Well, I mean, there's no, I've been trying to come up with a good analogy. There's no perfect analogy, but my guess is that almost in any famous war battle that, you know, if there was video of everybody like there is today and like there was at the Capitol, almost in any famous war battle, you're going to be able to find, if you had video of everybody, a bunch of people sitting around doing nothing or milling around for significant periods of time. And it would look if you if you took it out of context, it would look like wow, nothing really is happening here. You, you mean this is Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, or this is the storming of Normandy? I, I, I guarantee that that happened because that's real life. And also, by the way, no one is suggesting that everybody that went into the Capitol that day was there to cause violence. I mean, I don't think anybody believes that. So I, I don't think that. Tucker Carlson could come to a conclusion that the whole thing was a lie, that the whole narrative is false because he has this video of people who are clearly acting like tourists. He doesn't show you any of the video where police officers or or law enforcement officials are clearly being attacked at some level and that offices are being destroyed. Property is being destroyed. And, uh, and, and the, obvious fear that was instilled in those who were there, including Mike Pence and including members of of the Senate and the House. Now, whether they overreacted or not, I I think is an an interesting point. And I think in large part, they probably did. But given the information they had, it's at least somewhat understandable. So the reaction to Tucker Carlson, see, this is again why I hate this story, because everybody's wrong. 
the reaction by almost everybody was so over the top as to make me question even whether or not my evaluation of what Tucker did was accurate. Because whenever someone reacts this strongly and in this absurd a fashion, I immediately go, wait a minute, (laughs) there's got to be a problem here. (laughs) When Chuck Schumer is going on the floor of the U.S. Senate and using terms that are like 9-11-esque, to describe what Tucker Carlson did and to effectively demand that Rupert Murdoch, the head of News Corp, who owns Fox News Channel, censor and take Tucker Carlson off the air. I mean, this is the Senate majority leader is doing this. My initial reaction is, okay, wow, they are scared. What, what, why are they so scared of this? Because there's always two ways to react in these kind of situations, right? They can either ignore you or they can destroy you. And I thought, frankly, if you'd you'd asked me, that given the nature of what Tucker did and the fact that it's on Fox News Channel, which has already been discredited in the minds of over half of the American people, that they were probably going to go down more of the ignore it route. That that was what was going to happen here. That the left and the liberal media, that they would likely just ignore it, just pretend it didn't happen, maybe condemn it a little bit, and move on. Well, no, they didn't do that at all. They went in the other direction, and they went into the, we must destroy this at all costs. And Schumer led the way. He opened up the floodgates. The media was already clearly telegraphing that they were on his side. And here is Schumer after he gave his his very dramatic and overwrought speech on the floor of the Senate. Here is Schumer specifically pleading with Rupert Murdoch to take Tucker Carlson off the air before he does any more damage. And here's what that sounded like. Continue tonight. Rupert Murdoch, who has admitted they were lies and said he regretted it, has a special obligation to stop Tucker Carlson from going on tonight now that he's seen how he has perverted and slimed the truth and from letting him go on again and again and again. Not because their views deserve such opprobrium, but because our democracy depends on it. Now, ordinarily, if Chuck Schumer was going to do something like that, that dramatic, that over the top, there would be pushback from the Republican side in the U.S. Senate. In this case, There was not. Instead, the Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell, effectively backed Schumer up. Now, he didn't go quite as far, but he did criticize Fox News Channel for doing what they did. Now, again, there's so much conflict for me in this story. I I personally have no love for Mitch McConnell at all. He screwed me over in Louisville, Kentucky, when I was a radio talk show host there in a very big way. He had hosted me at a Louisville football game trying to kiss my butt when he thought I was going to be useful. And then I think he realized he couldn't control me. And and I even to this day suspect that he had a role in my demise at the radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't know that, but putting the pieces together, it's not a stretch at all. That being said, I try to be as objective about people as possible. And I think Mitch McConnell is usually a pretty darn good strategist although he might be losing his touch on that. But when it comes to 
being able to herd the cats of the Republicans in the U.S. Senate. He's done a pretty darn good job, and you got to give him credit for what he's done with regard to Supreme Court justices, certainly in, in the last few years, although they didn't turn out quite as well as we would have hoped. But I'm talking about getting them confirmed. And so as a strategist, I actually have respect for Mitch McConnell, even though personally I have an animus towards him. I honestly don't understand the strategy here. Now, he may, it's clear he really believes that Fox and, and Tucker Carlson were wrong, I think partially because he was there that day. And those people that were there that day, kind of like if you were at ground zero at 9-11, not to make a comparison, but just from a psychological standpoint, I think it makes a much deeper mark on you, obviously, understandably. And so therefore, you have a much more dramatic reaction when someone tries to say that what you experienced isn't really true. And so here was Mitch McConnell in a very rare form of bipartisanship backing up Chuck Schumer and condemning Fox News for allowing Tucker Carlson to do what he did. With the Capitol Police's very serious concerns about the release of this footage, was it a mistake by Speaker McCarthy to give access to Tucker Carlson of this security footage? My uh, concern is how it was depicted, which is a different issue. Clearly, the chief of the Capitol Police, in my view, correctly describes what most of us witnessed firsthand on January 6th. So that's my reaction to it. Um, it was a mistake, in my view, for Fox News to depict this in a way that's completely at variance with what our chief law enforcement official here at the Capitol thinks. That's the case. Following up on what you said, Tucker Carlson has already teased another round of videos that are going to be released today. I understand that you're upset with the way that Fox is depicting it, but he's been forecasting this for months, asking for this access to this footage to have a presentation just like this. Was it a mistake for the speaker to hand that? You guys know I have many faults, but one of them is not answering the question in a way that I don't want to answer it. I've given you the answer. <laughs> Why do you think there are some within your party who don't want to acknowledge January 6th as an attack or an insurrection? <laughs> Shall I give you the same answer again? <laughs> Anybody want to ask me something different? Do you have any Now, I was pretty surprised by that because... From a purely political strategery standpoint, that's problematic. And you know who that's problematic for? Uh, that's problematic for almost anybody running on the Republican side in 2024. Because um, now you have just allowed the news media to uh, create a even further divide on this issue. And I'm speaking specifically if, if Ron DeSantis is ever the, the nominee or even to become the nominee, DeSantis is clearly going to have to answer questions now about which side of the January 6th divide he is on. Not to mention every Senate candidate is going to have to do the same thing because McConnell has taken this position that's very much against where the base is going to be. And I'm surprised that McConnell apparently doesn't seem to be thinking this through, or maybe he just feels so 
passionately about what the truth there is that it doesn't matter to him. That he's, that's not the way Mitch McConnell normally works. He's normally about politics over everything. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so I see political risk in what McConnell did for him personally. And I mean, this is not a popular position at all with the base. It's not going to help him with the media at all. Nobody in the media is going to say, oh, let's rethink our our position on Mitch McConnell because he helped us out on this one and, and you know, basically told our side of the truth on this story. So I don't, under- I don't understand, regardless of the facts, I don't understand why McConnell decided to go down this path. Now, to be fair and to be clear, it was obvious that he at least understood the political peril here because there were follow-up questions that he refused to answer. And he did so in a rather coy fashion. Now, as far as the attacks on Fox News Channel are concerned, Tucker did do his show that night, Tuesday night. But I'm going to get into this in a little bit. I uh, am getting some sneaky suspicions that while he was not taken off the air, I think he got his wings clipped. And I don't know if it was by Rupert Murdoch uh, in, you know, directly or indirectly. And I'm hearing what I would refer to as more than just rumors that this is the case. But I'm going to get to that momentarily. But I just wanted to put put that out there since obviously Schumer and McConnell went after Fox News directly for allowing Tucker to do this. Then there's Merrick Garland, the attorney general, who was asked about this at a press conference. And this is an interesting clip because it shows just how deeply embedded what I believe to be a false narrative about how many people died that day has gotten. Now, I have talked about this on the podcast previously, where Joe Biden and his surrogates are very manipulative in how they describe the people who died that day, where they create the impression that there were five law enforcement officials who died that day, but they never actually specifically say that because it's not actually true. But they say it in a way that you could argue is technically true, but they also know they're never going to get the kind of scrutiny that they should get because, after all, they're on the right side according to the news media, and the news media is not interested at all in getting to the bottom of this. But this is Merrick Garland, the Attorney General of the United States, being asked about the Tucker Carlson report. The, um, the January 6th uh, investigation is the largest in the history of the department. Um, on television uh, last night, uh, uh, one program uh, aired some video uh, and char- uh, characterized it as uh, sightseeing 
uh, by a, a bunch of people coming into the Capitol who revered it. Uh, you've seen some of that video. What, what's your reaction to that? So I, I don't want to comment on any particular reports. I think all Americans saw what happened on January 6th, and most of it saw most of us saw it, of us saw it as it was happening. It was a violent attack on a fundamental tenet of American democracy, that power is peacefully transferred from one administration to another. Uh, um, over a hundred officers were assaulted on that day. Five officers died. Uh, we have charged more than a thousand people um, with their uh, crimes on that day, and more than 500 have already been convicted. I think it's very clear what happened on January 6th. Now, the reason I played that clip is because he's directly claiming there that five, I guess you call them police officers, died that day or died because of the insurrection. And there's just no evidence of that. Yes, there's the Brian Sicknick situation. Died of a stroke, apparently the next day, video of him seemingly being perfectly fine after he was reportedly dead. All right. Again, I am open to the idea, very open, that Sicknick did die at least somewhat related to what occurred on January 6th at the Capitol. But a lot of this, and I don't mean to be, uh, you know, irreverent or coy or, or to joke about a serious issue of people dying, but this is a lot like, COVID deaths. Did you die of the insurrection or did you die with the insurrection? (laughs) And it feels like these five deaths were dying with insurrection. In other words, they were there and therefore their deaths that occurred afterwards are obviously directly related to what happened on January 6th. Four of those five deaths apparently were suicide or at least plausibly suicide, which is really weird, but I don't know how you can claim that those deaths are directly because of January 6th of the protests. That's too much of a leap to me, especially when you're not willing to fully investigate the killing of Ashley Babbitt. That's what really bothers me most about this media narrative. And here we have the attorney general of the United States just casually mentioning this with no pushback at all from the media that's there. He just, he just, he just throws that out there, and if there was no indication that the dozens of media members there d- said, hey, wait a minute, wh- where are you getting this five number from? Could you please explain further what you mean by that? No, none of that, because they've just accepted that as the narrative. And that is, I think, part, there's a lot driving the media reaction to Tucker Carlson's report, but that's part of what's going on here, is that they did not tell the full truth about this. They allowed convenient lies to go uh, unrepudiated. And they did so because they wanted this narrative. It fit their agenda. It was anti-Trump. It was anti-Republican. It was good fodder. I think Democrats drove it into the ground. And by the way, public polling indicates that they drove it into the ground. The ratings for everything that they did were, were not particularly good. And so, um, you know, I, 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 it's, it's another indication of just how broken the news media is and how little trust they have. And they almost always overplay their hand. I say that's about liberals all the time. It's almost pathological. In fact, I think it is pathological with liberals. They will always, always, always overplay their hand. 
and they overplayed their hand with regard to what the facts were on January 6th. It was terrible, but it was not as bad as they portrayed it to be. And so Tucker Carlson, when he pushes back on that, and I, again, I want to be clear here. I think Tucker should not have come to any overall conclusions. I think he should have said, hey, look, these are important questions that need to be answered, which he did do, but leave out the conclusions, leave out the tourism stuff, leave out that this was a complete and total lie. Um, I, I would prefer that he leave out the implications that this was all an inside job and playing footsie with the conspiracy people. If he had done that, yes, he would have gotten a lot of negative reaction, but I think he would have been on firmer ground. And he might not have created <laughs> nearly the reaction that he did from all sides. I mean, the Capitol Hill police, the Sicknick family, uh, GOP senators, uh, Tillis in North Carolina, Mitt Romney went to uh, bananas. Uh, you heard from Mitch McConnell. There were a couple others, uh, GOP senators who did the same thing. But it was the news media that really went nuts. I mean, every element of the news media went on full attack against Tucker Carlson. Again, it's ignore or destroy in these situations. And they went on full destroy mode. And if I wanted, I could probably play a dozen different media clips of people going bananas on Tucker Carlson on other media outlets. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to play one clip because I think it's emblematic of the others. And there's also another interesting element to it. And, and that comes from Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper at CNN, and he had on as a guest uh, Michael Fanone, who was a Metro police officer who was attacked and apparently had a heart attack that day, although he obviously survived. And he's a, I guess he's a CNN contributor. And uh, he was on set with Anderson Cooper. And Cooper um, just lays it out right off the bat <laughs> with a personal attack on Tucker Carlson that I believe that if any straight white male had ever leveled against Anderson Cooper, that straight white male would have been instantly suspended, if not fired, in the wake of the woke mob going on the attack and asking for or demanding his head, uh, because it would be perceived as an anti-gay slur, since obviously Anderson Cooper happens to be gay. But here was Anderson Cooper attacking Tucker Carlson very personally while virtue signaling about the horrendous nature of trying to rewrite history with regard to January 6th. You know, I mean, the idea of Tucker Carlson being in that mob that day and not wetting his pants is hard to imagine. I mean, th th I, I find it hard to understand somebody who has never put himself in harm's way in, in any capacity for anyone else uh, or on reporting a story, um, and yet has the audacity to try to rewrite history. I mean, that, that's what this is. It, it is an attempt to rewrite history on what is one of the most consequential, you know, certainly one of the biggest events in American democracy and the uh, biggest threats to American democracy. No, I agree. I mean, Tucker Carlson is, you know, by his own admission, an entertainer, not a journalist. Um, and uh, on top of that, he's just proven himself to be uh, Donald Trump's chief propagandist. And that's all this was. And I think that, uh, you know, most Americans recognize that 
uh, way before this uh, segment aired that this was propaganda uh, and it was an attempt uh, by Tucker Carlson to uh, to downplay and, and whitewash the events of January 6th. Now, aside from the substance there, which I've kind of already addressed, the idea that there could ever be a straight white male news anchor, let's say on Fox, who who said that Anderson Cooper would have wet himself, wet his pants if he had ever been in the midst of this riotous situation. And obviously because Anderson Cooper is gay, I mean, that would have been perceived as an anti-gay slur. Whether it was or it wasn't, it wouldn't matter. That would be verboten. That would be a thought crime. And by the way, forget gay or not gay, there would have been a time not too long ago when it would have been inappropriate and unthinkable for any major news anchor to say that about an anchor on another network, that they would have wet their pants uh, if they were in this particular situation, to me, you know that kind of personal attack. There's the one, the hypocrisy issue of okay, you know, if everyone, anyone ever said that about Cooper, hell hath no fury. But there's also, I think, an indication here of how personal this has gotten, and the personal, I think, in part, is about jealousy. Let's be clear: Tucker Carlson has the the highest ratings of anybody in cable news. Tucker Carlson was given this massive scoop with these 40,000 plus hours of never seen video that should have been out to the public, in my opinion. I think it was a political mistake in the big picture for Kevin McCarthy to give it to Tucker Carlson, by the way. He did it because it fit his agenda. He effectively promised to do it while he was battling to win the speakership. And there's been speculation, although he denies it that this was part of the deal that got him the speakership. I don't know if I believe that or not, but it it clearly is in line with the idea that he had to placate his far right wing. And, you know, he gave it to the highest rated show on the conservative news network, Fox news. And in doing so, he McCarthy did, he made sure that it was going to be portrayed in a way that he and and members of of his caucus in the in the Republican House were going to like, right? Because they could trust Tucker Carlson wasn't going to tell a story that that wasn't consistent with their view of January sixth. But they also inherently made sure that it wasn't taken very seriously by everyone outside of the right wing media ecosystem. Because that's the world we now live in, where everyone's in silos. And if it's on Fox News Channel, especially if it's not on the news side, it's on the opinion side, then instantaneously it's not taken fully seriously. And it's a lot easier to attack. And by the way, maybe the most significant thing about the media response to Tucker Carlson has been how personal and vitriolic it is and how it is only on the surface. It's all about... You know, the, this idea that January 6th was a lie, blah, blah, blah. They're not dealing with the specifics. They're not dealing with any of the specifics that I did with Babbitt, Epps, Chansley's, Sicknick, Howley, none of that. No one is addressing the substance. And, and they, they get away with that partially because with their viewership, with their customer base, Fox News Channel is already so discredited. Tucker Carlson is already so discredited that. They don't have to deal with the substance. 
They're just dealing with the big picture. Oh, he's saying January 6th is a lie, which is why I wish he wouldn't have made it so easy for them. They would have gone in that direction anyway, but Carlson made it, in my opinion, too easy for them because he, he overplayed his hand, which is consistent with my view of this whole story, that everybody's at least a little bit wrong. Almost everybody's also a little bit right. The truth is very murky here. It's not black or white. It's not up or down. And it's, again, partially why I hate this story. But there's some other important elements of this. So as I look at this, I go, all right, so the media goes absolutely nuts, apoplectic. They go much more down the road of destroy instead of ignore. I mean, heck, my old outlet, Mediaite, where I was a senior columnist for years, almost every single story they did yesterday was about the Tucker Carlson situation and and issues related to it. And I mean, it was, and that was consistent across the board when it came to the media coverage. But you've got, you know, everybody going ballistic, including GOP senators, not all of them, but many significant ones. And I'm wondering myself, okay, why would these GOP senators revolt? Why would Fox News not really support what Tucker was doing? I mean, Elon Musk on Twitter was more supportive of Tucker Carlson than the Fox News brass seemed to be, at least publicly. He tweeted support for the story, and specifically those who had been incarcerated, in his view, potentially unfairly because of the panic surrounding the day. Those are my words, not his. And I think, by the way, that's probably the biggest issue here. It does feel to me as if the the, the biggest issue, whether it's Chansley individually or others in general, is that there was an over-prosecution of this and that people who really didn't do very much are, are being you know, incarcerated for extended periods of time during an era where people can can try to murder people or even sometimes actually murder people and, and not get nearly as much uh, punishment. But that's another story for another day. Anyway, so the, the Fox brass, it's not like they put out a statement in support of Carlson after Chuck Schumer went after him. That would have been expected, right? I mean, that was a, a major First Amendment potential Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Free speech violation there for the Senate Majority Leader on the floor of the Senate to demand censorship. I mean, I, I probably shortchanged that particular issue when I was talking about Schumer's clip. I mean, because it's just so obvious. I mean, that is 
that is really what our founding fathers would have been very upset about the idea that a U.S. senator was demanding, not criticizing a report, that's fine, demanding that an owner uh, of a company over which the U.S. Senate could have some power take somebody off the air because they're using real clips. There's no no allegation that these were manipulated or that, you know, that they're faked. Real clips given to him by the Speaker of the House of Representatives. I mean, this is, you can't make this up. I mean, this is this is chilling, chilling stuff. And yet Fox News Channel, to, to my knowledge, and again, I can't imagine I would have missed this, made no overt public statement supporting Carlson. And when you look at the coverage on Fox News Channel of what Carlson did, it raises a lot of red flags and interesting questions. Most, of, if not all, of the news programming on Fox News Channel did not promote or or further what Carlson had done. In fact, it ignored it. Brett Baer even highlighted Mitch McConnell's statement condemning it and did nothing to promote it from the standpoint of a of a news element. Then there's the primetime opinion section of Fox News Channel. And, and there's a very strong, at least within Fox, dividing line between the news product, which is the middle of the day. You got Fox and Friends in the morning, and then you have the primetime opinion hosts. And there's really, in the, at least in the Fox world, there's two totally different worlds there. At least they like to think of that that way. And so I was very curious, okay, what are the primetime opinion hosts going to do here? That's going to be the real tell. Because if they jump on board here, then then clearly there's been no uh, strong movement by Rupert Murdoch or anybody else to curtail discussion of these tapes. Well, I got to tell you, and I didn't watch every minute, but I watched a lot. I, I DVR'd all of it and went through it as much as I could. When you look at Jesse Waters and Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, who are the other primetime hosts on Fox News Channel, it was very weird the night after this occurred, the second night, the, the Tuesday night after Chuck Schumer had, had made his dramatic declaration on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It was very odd. Waters, I believe, mostly if not totally ignored it. Hannity kind of talked about it, but in the weirdest way possible, where now suddenly this is an issue of the authorities messing up the security. In other words, blaming the authorities for not keeping the crowd in line and how incompetent Nancy Pelosi and Democrats were and the Capitol Police and all that. I mean, that, that was very strange. So he was kind of talking about it, but never using any of the footage, not mentioning Tucker Carlson by name. He seemed a little uncomfortable to me, although that just could be because he's not very good. That's it's always tough to tell with Sean Hannity. Plus, he's an idiot. But I digress. Uh, Laura Ingram was the same way. She was it, she talked about a little bit more. I believe she used some of the footage that Tucker had been using. But again, she didn't directly refer to Tucker's report, at least not uh, overtly. And she did it in a convoluted way. Both were truncated. It was almost like, here's what I'm going, where I'm going with this. It felt very much like Hannity and Ingram made the decision that, you know what, this is what our viewers are talking about. This is what they expect to hear about. So I'm going to do a hocus pocus routine 
where I'm going to appear to talk about it, but I'm not going to really talk about it. I'm going to, it's going to be the subject matter, but I'm going to dance around and I'm just going to get through a, a segment or two. So it's, it's, it seems like I'm talking about this, what Tucker did, but I'm really not. And then I'm going to move on. And then there was Tucker himself. And, you know, Tucker's show last on Tuesday night, I taped this on Wednesday morning, on Tuesday night had to be one of the highest rated of his entire career, given all the publicity surrounded, which is why I figured they were going to go down the road of ignore him instead of attack him and destroy him because attacking him is only going to create more viewership in this environment in which we now live. And so I'm sure his Tuesday night ratings were enormous, maybe bigger than they were from the Monday night, the original night that this report aired. And his show was also very strange to me. Only half of the show was devoted to this. I mean, it, God forbid, if I was ever doing a primetime show on a major cable news network, which is never going to happen for a whole lot of reasons, and and my show ever became that much of a focus because of a report I did on, on one night, I can guarantee to you that if I had complete control of things, the next day, 100% of the show is going to be devoted to that topic. 100%. But that's not what happened. And even the half of it that was devoted to it, didn't really forward the story. It was much more, it was a lot of it was navel gazing. They had a long interview with a Capitol police uh, officer who lost his job, partially because he wore a red MAGA hat, even though he was a democratic voter, happened to be a black guy. It was an interesting interview, but it really, it, it really must've been a letdown for a lot of the people that were expecting red meat on this particular issue of January 6th. I mean, he's got 40,000 plus hours I can't believe he, he couldn't get more than one hour of show out of this. There's nothing else. And so none of this proves that what Schumer did on the floor of the Senate had a major impact on what Carlson did on the air, but it's consistent with it. And I re- mentioned earlier that I'm hearing what I would refer to as more than rumors. And I, I can't be too specific about it, but th- I have a person who has told me, who I, re- I trust and rely on, has told me that they have spoken to two senior executives at Fox who have told this person that Tucker, and these are my words, got his wings clipped. That, and here's my interpretation. Again, I, I, this is, I wouldn't call this a, something that I could say is a factual report, this is, but it's more than a rumor. right? So, so this is a podcast, so the rules are a little bit different. This is something that I'm hearing that I think has some credibility to it. And... Uh, and it's consistent with what I'm seeing on the air. And so here's my theory. My theory is they know they couldn't take Carlson off the air. They know that they couldn't tell him exactly what he could and couldn't do because he's too powerful. But they gave him a message of, hey, let's let's tone it down a notch and, and let's move on. That's what I think happened. That's if you if gun to my head, I think that 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 Tucker was told that by whom I don't know. I, I doubt it would come directly from Rupert because, you know, then that would give Tucker probably too much power if he ever went public about something like this. Um, but, they, you know, they, they weren't, and Tucker knows they weren't going to fire him over this, that the, the, the network would collapse. Uh, I also have to say that on the other side of this, knowing Tucker a little bit, his demeanor did not seem like somebody who was being dramatically censored. So it's possible that this is just, is a I don't know if you would call it a, a, a misperception or 
uh, an urban legend or people talking about things that they don't really know that they're exaggerating. It's possible this isn't 100% true because I think I would have picked up on it from Tucker. I mean, he's a very sarcastic guy and he often, you know, he often allows his body language to speak for him. And I didn't perceive that in watching uh, his Tuesday night show, but I did find his content to be odd, the content of Hannity and Ingram to be odd, uh, and in, and certainly consistent with this idea that there has been a message from on high. Hey, let's let's cut it out. Let, let's let's you know get out of this and move on. So my prediction is that you're going to quickly see much less of this issue uh, on primetime Fox and. Further facilitating that theory is more revelations out of the Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit, which is really remarkable stuff and has the media all in a tizzy uh, today as we tape this. This is all the, the same media that was attacking Tucker Carlson the day before is now I bizarrely, uh, I guess, somewhat praising him or, or I guess attacking his hypocrisy for his position on Donald Trump. I'm going to get to that momentarily, but I want to I just want to uh, put a, a, a stamp on what the bottom line of this whole thing is. I want, I want to wrap this whole deal up with regard to the political significance. I, I do believe that in an ideal world, what Tucker Carlson did should raise some important questions. Unfortunately, those questions are not going to be taken up by the mainstream news media. They're not even going to be taken up by other people on Fox for reasons that I I just stated. I think politically, this is bad for every Republican other than, ironically, Donald Trump. I think this is very good for Donald Trump. Trump, of course, has praised Tucker Carlson's report, which is, again, ironic given what we're now about to talk about with regard to Carlson and his real true feelings about Donald Trump. But, uh, you know, Trump obviously knows this is good for him. And this is going to now create a new January 6th narrative on the right, where it's going to be an article of faith among the conservative base that January 6th was a fraud. I don't know about, about you know, what the numbers are there, how many people are going to buy into that narrative, but it's a significant narrative now. It, it's never going to go away. And that means that every Republican candidate, especially Ron DeSantis, is going to have to pick a side on that article of faith. Before what Tucker Carlson did, I think it was possible, given the fact that this is an older story that had faded away, that it was possible to thread that needle, that Ron DeSantis could have threaded that needle as to you know, not offending the base about his views of what occurred that day while still not portraying himself as some sort of conspiracy nut or not saying that he believed that what happened on January 6th was somehow a fraud or that it might even been a good thing or so that, you know, I think he could have taken a position that was palatable that would not have dramatically offended the base. I don't see how you do that now. And I realize that, you know, the primaries are a long time from now and, and he's in Florida and he can somewhat avoid these questions for a while. And it's going to fade from the, from the media landscape. I get that. It's possible that he could avoid this for a while, but at some point the news media knows, see the news media knows what divides 
the the Republican base. They know what works politically. They're not complete idiots. And they know that this is now going to be a wedge issue. And this is an issue that is a landmine for Ron DeSantis. You can't massage this anymore, thanks to what Tucker Carlson did. And and that, I think, was another reason why I hate this story, because the outcome here is is terrible. How terrible, I don't know. But uh, the great irony in all this, it's so ironic that a guy... We, we we learn just how much he hates Donald Trump the day after he does a report that might have been the best thing that's happened to Donald Trump so far in the Republican nominating process. I, I mean, that's the world upside down world we live in, folks. Now to the, the story I've been referring to. So this Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit has had all sorts of revelations about what the Fox News hosts really think about the stolen election theory. Most of them think that it's garbage. Uh, and and by the way, Tucker Carlson, I think, has been unfairly attacked in this realm because he didn't ever promote the stolen election narrative on his show. He pushed back on it more so than any of the other opinion hosts. He didn't do it as much as I would have liked him to, but he, I think he at least deserves some semblance of credit for that. So he's not really being that hypocritical in his private messages, certainly not as much as Sean Hannity and, and Laura Ingram, but there's a new batch of these messages. And some of them that are getting the most publicity, obviously, surround Tucker Carlson and his views of Donald Trump. And this was just before the January 6th event, whatever you want to call it. And Tucker Carlson, in a thought-to-be-private message, refers to Trump saying, I hate him passionately. I hate him passionately. (laughs) Sounds familiar, feels familiar. (laughs) Because that's something I might say like almost on every episode of the Death of Journalism podcast, except I say it publicly because I don't care about offending the audience and Tucker Carlson obviously does. He also says, I can't wait to ignore him, meaning Trump. And he also refers to his presidency as, quote, unquote, a disaster where there's not much to show for it. I, I mean, right there. I mean, folks, I, I mean, I've, I've stopped believing that rationality or facts or truth mean anything. But if that doesn't tell you, one, everything you need to know about the nature of cable news, and two, if that doesn't show a Trump supporter that there have been duped. I don't know what possibly could. I mean, here's the number one host on the number one conservative network, the network that made Donald Trump. And he's saying, I hate Trump passionately. His, his term in office was a disaster. I can't wait to ignore him. And this was before January 6th and the second impeachment saga. And I believe it to be Tucker Carlson's true beliefs. And it's depressing that he's unwilling or unable to express those beliefs on his show because he knows it would be disastrous for his ratings. But now that it's out there, I doubt he's, I mean, who knows with Tucker, but I doubt he's going to address this on the air or in any kind of interviews. Um, but there's, that's, that's his true beliefs. And it's based upon reality. <laughs> it's based upon his own experiences with the guy. And here's a guy who has made millions and millions of dollars effectively promoting the Trump presidency. 
Now, he tries to ignore it as much as possible. I mean, it is obvious to anyone who watches Tucker regularly that, I mean, he, he barely ever mentions Donald Trump's name, either in a positive or in a negative fashion, which is true to what he said. I can't wait to ignore him. I mean, even, even with the, the January 6th report, he, he tries not to, to mention Trump nearly that much. The only context he ever really talks about Trump, which is accurate, because I do the same thing, is, you know, that there are attacks on Trump that are unfair. COVID was an attack, uh, effectively, in in large ways, uh, on Donald Trump, whether it was conscious or or subconscious. And I think Tucker would absolutely agree with that. January 6th was overblown as an attack on Donald Trump. I would agree with that, too. Doesn't mean it wasn't based in reality, though. And so... These Dominion voting systems messages that are coming out in the lawsuit are uh, incredibly edifying about the true nature of cable news, how broken it is. By the way, uh, apparently there's new messages from Rupert Murdoch indicating that uh, Fox News went too far when it came to the stolen election uh, claims. And I think the other thing that's getting a lot of attention today is the internal hatred and distrust within Fox News Channel. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, uh, by the opinion guys, the Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram, those type of people, and the news people, and the executives. I mean, there's so much division within Fox News Channel, which unfortunately is consistent with the way the news media works. You got a bunch of narcissists, egomaniacs, a, a bunch of people who you know, are tension whores, who are making a lot of money. They, they all have big egos and they're all very territorial and they're all very competitive with one another. I mean, I haven't been on Fox News. I've been on blacklisted on Fox News Channel for a very long time, but I used to go on Fox quite a bit, especially during the, the Sarah Palin era. And it was well known then. Well known then that Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly was the big dog. He was basically the Tucker Carlson of today. It was well known that Bill O'Reilly, who was the big dog at that time, effectively the, the Tucker Carlson of back then, that he and Sean Hannity hated each other, hated each other. They were incredibly competitive with one another. The, sh- the shows internally we're competitive with one another. Let me give you a very, very small example, but was really eye-opening to me. After I did the Sarah Palin interview after the 2008 election, and uh, we release a few of the clips, and the media reaction is just but just off the charts, uh, way bigger than I ever imagined. And I'm I'm getting interview requests by every possible news network, 
MSNBC, ABC, Fox News, uh, um, you know, the, the View, eventually the Today Show. I mean, everybody is is clamoring to interview me because they know they can't get Sarah Palin. And I have access to this exclusive interview with Sarah Palin. Well, it was during the daytime and uh, I get booked on a Fox News show. I don't even remember which one it was. And um, and so I get another call from another Fox News show that's John just after the Fox News show that I am scheduled to be on. And this booker, this is amazing to me. Again, very small story, but I think it gives you an indication of how things work within these cable news networks and how bizarre things are. So I'm already booked on Fox, and they apparently had some rule that I guess if you're not a celebrity, I don't know if that's how they stated the rule, but that was effectively the rule. If you're not a celebrity, you can only be on once during the day on Fox News Channel. So because I was booked on one Fox show that I hadn't done yet, I couldn't do the show of the booker who I was speaking to on the phone. And they openly told me, they openly told me with in total seriousness that they might try to sabotage my limo ride to the first Fox show so that I would miss that show and be available for them. I am not making this up. I am not exaggerating. I don't remember the names, but I'm telling you 100% truthfulness. And I was like, what the hell? I could somewhat understand that if like, if I was scheduled on an MSNBC show that was going to conflict with the Fox show and they would sabotage my limo ride. So I would miss that. They could pick me up and take me to their studio to do their show. That would make some sense, but this was internally within Fox. That's how much these people hate each other. That's how much competition there is within these shows. And uh, you know, I mean, maybe that's the environment that creates Great content. I don't know. It certainly works for them in the ratings. And, you know, but this is an indication of the way this kind of thing works. And the Dominion voting service systems uh, revelations is certainly consistent with that because these people all distrust each other. They all hate each other. Um, and you know, this impacts actual news coverage. But more importantly, it's an indication that this is all a show. This is all show business. This is the kind of thing that would happen, you know, on a Hollywood movie production. It's all about ego. It's not a, the truth isn't even considered to be part of the equation here. And, and I guess that's maybe the most depressing part of the whole thing. And it's maybe the most important element of it from the standpoint of the death of journalism podcast. Now I want to shift gears a little bit here because I've been talking for over an hour about uh, this story, but it's an important story and it's also emblematic of the theme of this entire podcast. But um, I want to shift a little bit, although there's still going to be some elements of the January 6th story involved here. I, I want to play a clip from CNN with quote unquote historian and documentarian Ken Burns, who's obviously extremely liberal and now, uh, much like a lot of other historians, feels a lot more comfortable in this woke era, letting his hair down and, and exposing just how liberal he really is. But he's on with the Don Lemon, who uh, is back on the air uh, in the morning show on CNN. And uh, he goes off on uh, what's happening within Republican circles. And he tries to group Ron DeSantis with Tucker Carlson. <laughs> And 
in my opinion, dramatically contradicts himself with regard to the issue of censorship, of ideas, and and just really tries to paint everybody on the Republican side with this broad brush of racism, uh, which, of course, gets teed up by Don Lemon, who happens to be black, uh, on CNN. And and here's what that sounded like uh, on uh, Tuesday morning of this of this week. Moved enough to write about this bill and what's going on with the whole idea of critical race theory and not teaching the full history of this country. Why? You know, what makes America great is not the suppression of ideas or the pursuit of every corner of those ideas may lead us or the facts. It's it's about who we are and how we investigate who we are and celebrate the diversity of who we are. All of these bills that DeSantis and others are doing limit our ability to understand who we are and are not inclusive. They're exclusive. They're, they're narrowing the focus of what is and isn't American history. It's terrifying. It feels like a Soviet system or, you know, the way the Nazis would build a Potemkin village. Tucker Carlson's doing the same thing with the footage from uh, 1-6. It's just uh, a, a kind of rewriting of history at the most dangerous level. It's a it's, it's huge threat to our republic. I'm doing, Don, a film right now working on a major series on the history of the American Revolution, and I can tell you that Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine and George Washington and John Adams and James Madison and Alexander Hamilton are rolling over in their graves if they think that this person is carrying the mantle of what it is to be American. So let me get this straight. So Ron DeSantis preventing tax dollars from being used to teach critical race theory to Florida public school children is the restriction of the freedom of ideas and somehow Nazi-esque or uh, Soviet-esque. And by the way, I'm not an expert on this, but apparently he got his facts wrong about which was Nazi, which was Soviet. But okay, I mean, he's only supposed to be the premier historian in America. Um, And so that's a restriction of, of the free expression of ideas. But Tucker Carlson playing real video of a major news event, even if you disagree with how he portrayed it, that somehow is also censorship. So, so wait a minute here. How, how does that work? How does that work exactly? So, so I guess here's what the bottom line is. What, what Ken Burns is most upset about is it's the, it's restricting the free expression of liberal narratives. That's what it is. That's what Ken Burns is upset about. We now live in a world where we don't have total freedom as liberals to spew our bogus narratives, even to school children using tax dollars or to stop uh, cable news hosts from playing raw, real video of an event that we have made a major issue of over the past two years, three years. So, um, (laughs) it's just, this is, it's unbelievable on so many levels. It's an indication of just how desperate they are to attack Ron DeSantis. It's an also an indication that these historians, I mean, this is one of my new pet peeves historian. Now, if you're a mainstream media person who gets a lot of play and you're called a historian, that's basically just a way to dress up a a dangerous Marxist liberal. We're just going to call him a historian. And and that way they'll be given credibility, and you know Ken Burns has done some great work. Uh, I, I think as a 
white male, he feels a particular need to make sure that he continues to toe the line and not get canceled. Because frankly, some of his stuff, especially in the Civil War, if you looked at it today, you could you could see a scenario where Ken Burns could get canceled because he actually does at times say some things that are positive about the Confederacy in his his famous Civil War documentary uh, series. But that was okay back then because we were still willing to tell both sides and the truth mattered and it wasn't all about politics and we didn't have these narratives that one side was all bad, one side was all good. Um, anyway, so uh, that's Ken Burns. And this reminded me, of course, of something I talked about in the previous episode of the podcast, episode 38, Michael Beschloss, who's a, you know, another historian who's been on television on NBC for decades, where, you know, he has always been perceived as this esteemed historian and he's objective and he's just telling it like it is from the perspective of history and academia. And recently he has just completely exposed himself as a far left Marxist and a nut job, frankly. And he went off on Ron DeSantis with regard to this story that somehow DeSantis wanted to make sure that all bloggers in the state of Florida that were covering him were registered with the state. And now, and this was, he referred to DeSantis as a, uh, a local Mussolini, Mussolini, the dictator from Italy during World War II, Mussolini. This, this was a, an act that made him a Mussolini in the minds of a historian. <laughs> and this was, he said this on MSNBC and we play, I played the clip. He called Ron DeSantis, Rick DeSantis, by the way, he was, I knew he was totally wrong at the time. I wasn't 100% sure how wrong he was about that. And my gut was telling me, wait a minute. First of all, this doesn't sound like DeSantis. Number two, I had read a little bit about this proposal, and it was not a law. It had been signed by Rick DeSantis. DeSantis. (laughs) How about that for a Freudian slip? By Ron DeSantis. Rick DeSantis is what Michael Beschloss called him. It hadn't been signed by him. It was was just proposed. And And I'm thinking, first of all, I doubt very seriously that DeSantis supports this. Second of all, he's not responsible for what anybody in the Cal- in the in the Florida legislature, not the California, the Florida legislature would propose. You can propose anything as a member of legislature. Well, sure enough, my instincts were right and DeSantis made a statement yesterday basically saying exactly that that uh I don't know what the hell these people are talking about. I didn't even know about this. I'm not supporting it. I, I'm not going to sign it if it becomes law. And of course, as soon as DeSantis says he doesn't support it because he has so much power in Florida right now and in the Republican legislature, it's not going to go anywhere. So it was simply just a proposal from one member of the legislature in Florida. And here's what uh, that sounded like when DeSantis uh, took on yet another false media narrative about him. They're going to have to register for the state. And it's like attributing it to me. And I'm like, okay, that's not anything that that, that I've ever supported. I don't support. Uh, I've been very clear about what we're doing. And so people have a right to file legislation. They have a right to to do different types of amendments and all that other stuff. Um, But the Florida, a whole 120 of them in the House and however many in the 40 in the Senate, you know, they have independent agency to be able to do things. Like I don't control every single bill that has been filed or amendment. So just as 
as we go through this session, uh, please, um, you know, understand that. Uh, but I do think it's going to be very, very productive. We were given an opportunity. I mentioned. So that's how bad the media coverage of Ron DeSantis is right now. I mean, it was obvious. It was just purely logical that that story never made any sense. And it was reported widely, not just by Michael Beschloss on MSNBC. It became a data point in this emerging narrative of Ron DeSantis is authoritarian. He won't allow the study of slavery in Florida. Bullshit. It's, it has nothing to do with that. In fact, he's legally required to uh, make sure that slavery is taught in Florida schools. It's a completely different issue. The don't say gay bill. That's a completely bogus narrative that gets used all the time. I mean, they're in headlines all the time now, these news outlets will say the so-called don't say gay bill, even though it's a completely false description of the bill, but they get away with it by saying the so-called or, or, or what his critics call the so-called gay bill. That's not the way it's supposed to work, folks. You don't get to make up what a bill is and have that be described in the headline of any discussion of it. But this is all creating or attempting to create an emerging narrative in order to destroy somebody that they haven't yet destroyed. They've already destroyed Trump as much as they're going to destroy him with 55% of the American public. They haven't done that yet with DeSantis. So whether it's don't say gay or you can't teach slavery or you're, you're an authoritarian that's forcing bloggers to register with the state, just total bullcrap did not happen. Quite obviously never happened. And you know, once again, DeSantis proved that. But I guarantee you what DeSantis just said there isn't going to get as much play and no one's going to retract what they said. No one's going to say, oops, I'm sorry. Michael Beschloss is not going to say, you know what? When I called him Mussolini for something that he didn't do, I apologize. I'm sorry. He's not going to be taken off the air or, or restricted from his appearances on MSNBC because no one cares because there's no accountability anymore. Now, as far as the, the race between Trump, the announced candidate, and Ron DeSantis, who was not yet announced as a candidate, and it's remarkable how much more coverage Ron DeSantis is getting than Trump is, considering Trump is the clear front runner and DeSantis has not even announced. I discussed this with Dan Abrams on News Nation television on Monday night. You can find that appearance on my Twitter feed and my Facebook page. But the polling uh, on this race is, is, very confusing. As someone who has studied polling most of my adult life, briefly been a pollster at Quinnipiac University Polling Institute, there has always been this phenomenon when it comes to presidential primaries that state polls and national polls are very, very different. That has always been a thing. It's always been a thing that I've never fully understood. And I usually have a pretty decent theory to explain almost anything that seems weird. I don't have a great theory on this one, except other than there are certain states that because they are so integral to the primary process, that the people in those states tend to pay more attention sooner than in other states where they're not really paying much of attention because they know their primary has historically never been all that important. I don't think that explains the whole thing, but that's the best I can come up with. But I cannot recall a situation that is as dramatic as this, especially with a candidate like Trump, who is so incredibly well-known. See, part of this disparity between national and state polls 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Goes to name recognition and name ID. And so the theory would be that Trump would do very, very well in a national poll because his name ID is obviously universal. But why wouldn't that translate to a state poll? And what I mean by that is the most recently morning consult of polling Institute came out with a very disturbing poll from my perspective that showed that Trump is now increasing his lead nationally over DeSantis to 52-28, which is an increase over the last server they did, which was an increase over the previous server they did to that. So in other words, for the last two surveys they've done since the midterms, which you would think would be a, a time period where Trump would be fading, he's actually increasing his lead over DeSantis. And uh, that's not good news if you're in my camp on Team DeSantis. How bad is that news? I don't know yet. I I, 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 tr- I truly believe that we're not going to have a, a good handle on this unless and until DeSantis actually announces. If a couple of weeks after he announces those numbers nationally haven't moved, then I think we could be in a situation where this thing is over. Because as I've said continually, if Trump's national base is is anywhere close to 40, 45%, where he cannot go below that, then it's almost impossible to defeat him in a Republican primary. Now, it has to be at that level in the first few states, which would be Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Uh, I got the order mixed up there. Nevada, I think, goes before South Carolina. Uh, and then you got Super Tuesday. But uh, the the reality is that the difference between Trump being at 40, 45% of a base and say 30% of the base is the difference between winning and losing. And, and so the morning consult poll is very disturbing. Now, weirdly at the very same time, there's a poll out of Virginia that indicates that DeSantis is defeating Trump in Virginia, very similar to the poll that had DeSantis defeating Trump rather soundly here in California. And those are two big, obviously, California is a huge state and Virginia is a big state and an important state, theoretically, both in a primary and a general election. So I don't know what to make of this. Um, it's not great news. It's not horrendous news if you're on Team DeSantis. I, I will say that the, as I'm always trying, even though I'm always uh, pegged as a pessimist, I'm always accused of being too pessimistic, which I've always 
perceived means, okay, you're, you're telling me I'm right. Cause the only time I'm ever wrong is generally when I'm too optimistic, but as in my continuing attempt to be somewhat optimistic, if only for my own mental health, some of the good news, even in the national polling, the morning consult poll, for instance, is that there does not appear to be a lot of thirst for a third candidate or certainly not even a fourth candidate. And that might be the most important thing right now. So if you're if you're trying to make the good argument here, even though Trump is clobbering DeSantis nationally, he's not doing so in the state polls. And most importantly, this might be more important for the, if you want to talk about, you know, losing the battle, but winning the war for the war, the most important thing is that they're not become three or four candidates that get enough traction to where DeSantis can't get to 40, 45, 50% to be able to beat Trump in a protracted battle. And I got to tell you, and I said this about the CPAC straw poll right now, and I'm pleasantly surprised by this, there does not appear to be much thirst at all for Nikki Haley or Mike Pence uh, or even Governor Youngkin in Virginia. Now, he's very, very popular in Virginia. I mean, there's a, there was a poll out recently that indicated if Youngkin ran, he would clobber Joe Biden in Virginia. <laughs> By the way, Trump would lose. Right there, in a rational world, that should be a huge problem for Trump politically, but it's not. I mean, Youngkin and DeSantis in that poll from a couple of weeks ago kicked the crap out of Biden. Youngkin did far more than than DeSantis did, but that makes sense since Youngkin is the governor of the state. Yet Trump lost to Biden in the same poll by a point. But of course, you know, that doesn't mean doesn't mean anything to the base because they don't believe in polls when they don't fit their their narrative or their agenda. Anyway, the, the bigger point of this whole thing is that right now there doesn't appear to be a lot of incentive for anybody else to get into the race. And there doesn't appear to be a lot of incentive to give money to Haley or Pence. And so if they can't get to those that double figure magic number that I referred to in episode number 38, then they might not be much of a factor. They might not stick around very much. And we might get a one-on-one mano a mano battle where DeSantis actually has a shot. Because I've always believed three or four people that are legitimate candidates or five people. And especially if the debate stage is all cluttered with six or seven people, that's very bad for DeSantis. And it's very good for Trump. Conversely, if it's one-on-one, I, I like DeSantis's chances, even though it'll be a bloodbath and, and who knows what'll happen in the general election. But that's the state of the polling. As far as the state of, of Donald Trump is concerned, there are two reports out and they're decently sourced. But with Trump, you never know. But there's this report involving Trump and new nicknames for Ron DeSantis, which... <laughs> With Trump, you never know what's real and what's not, but this kind of sounds like Trump. And this is being reported even by the Daily Wire, although they're not the conservative outlet. The Daily Wire is not the original source on this story, but this is this is the story that I'll read from. Headline, Trump workshopping three more derogatory names for DeSantis and digging up dirt on his wife, Casey, according to a report. Bloomberg News senior reporter Jennifer Jacobs, legitimate reporter, 
tweeted a report authored by Nancy Cook, which said that Trump is spending, quote, much of his and his team's time on complaining about a lack of media coverage, what he claims was a stolen election, and trying to come up with new names for DeSantis, who is widely expected to enter the presidential race in the coming months. Jacobs said that according to Trump's allies, the former president is considered trying to label DeSantis as Ron Dishonest, Ron the Establishment, or Tiny D. Now, I want you to just consider the insanity of this on the global level, that this is what the Republican frontrunner, former president of the United States, does with his time. He spitballs nicknames for a guy who isn't even in the race yet, a guy who is a hero to many Republicans. He already, you know, went with Ronda Sanctimonious. Apparently, he didn't like that or didn't work. Uh, Meatball Ron. John Oliver loved Meatball Ron, but maybe that discredited Meatball Ron to to Trump. I don't know. Um, I mean, this is just insane. This is insane on its face. But even as nuts as this is, comes the next sentence, which goes from the standpoint or the the perspective of Trump is just (laughs) a nut job to, to maybe Trump is evil. Because the report added that Trump is trying to, quote, dig up dirt on DeSantis's wife, recent breast cancer survivor Casey DeSantis, who has three children with the governor. Now, again, with Trump, you never know what's true. These are credible reporters saying this. It's supposedly coming from Trump allies. And uh, as, as nutty as the nickname story is, the idea that you would even think it would be a good idea or that you would even you know, have the moral willingness to do this, to go dig up dirt on someone's wife, especially when they're a, a cancer survivor, is, is just it's unbelievable, even by Trump standards. I don't even know what the hell he would think he could come up with. I mean, there's already nude photos of his own wife, so I don't know what, 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 what in theory he could be coming up with uh, to attack Casey DeSantis. But that, to me, one, it shows the nature of who Trump is, if it's true. And two, it also shows how worried he is about Ron DeSantis. And that might be the best sign yet for Ron DeSantis, is that clearly for the first time in Donald Trump's Republican presidential political career, he is worried about an opponent. That's never been evident before. And he should be, because DeSantis is a different breed of cat. And this could be a very different primary. Could be, if things break the way they need to, which is effectively a one-on-one race. Now, while... That's strange. There's another report out, not as, in my opinion, well-sourced, but it is legitimate and it's been taken seriously, that Trump is considering naming as his vice presidential nominee, Carrie Lake. Now, politically, I don't understand this at all. Um, This would be a terrible choice. Carrie Lake, who I used to somewhat like before she lost the race for Arizona governor. And I thought she had great potential as a vice presidential nominee as governor of Arizona. 
But now she's an unemployed person bitching and moaning about having lost an election where she told John McCain voters to go to hell just a couple days before the election. And then she's complaining about having lost by 17,000 votes. Meanwhile, two Republican Congress people won very close races in Arizona, which helped clinch the House for the GOP. So I don't know how the hell the, somehow the, the, the state of Arizona was rigged or fixed against Republicans. Um, but anyway, I don't want to get too deeply into that whole mess because I do believe that the election was was a crap show. No question about it, especially in Maricopa County. I, I don't deny any of that, but I do deny that the uh, somehow she is the rightly elected governor of, of Arizona, and she has shown herself to be a nut job. And in the last episode of the podcast, I went into a CPAC, how she was effectively sucking Trump off in ways that were grotesque, um, if not literal. And, um, and, and it's obvious that she realizes that her only path to relevance going forward now is to kiss up to Donald Trump in every possible way. Now, normally you would think that that's not very effective, right? I mean, she's, she's not governor. I, I mean, obviously if she runs for Senate, uh, which it would be theoretically possible. She can't run for vice president at the same time. Um, and so she doesn't really, in theory, hold that much cachet for Donald Trump. I mean, she's not going to, she, she already shows she can't produce a win in Arizona, which is the only theoretical political benefit that she has. She'd be toxic in Georgia. She'd be toxic in, in Wisconsin. Uh, she might even be toxic in Nevada. And these are the states that would matter in a in a Biden versus Trump rematch. However, she does have one thing going for her, which, as anyone who knows anything about Donald Trump knows, is very important. And that is she's a beautiful woman who publicly says nice things about Donald Trump. And so right there, that's basically his kryptonite. And so is it possible he's actually thinking about Carrie Lake? I think it is possible. I still don't believe he's actually going to do that. But when you think about it, the, the potential choices for a Trump vice presidential nominee are are not not voluminous. There's not a lot of people that are in this correct camp. I still believe Nikki Haley would be the favorite and would be his best choice. Um, but you know, she's not, she's not going to kiss his butt quite the same way as. Carrie Lake and Carrie Lake is is physically a little bit hotter because after all, as Dom Lemon said, Nikki Haley is past her prime, right? <laughs> Age wise, I guess Carrie Lake is too, but she's a bit hotter than than Nikki Haley is at least currently. Not that Nikki Haley is unattractive, but I digress. So that's out there as a potential situation that just shows um, just how bananas, how crazy how nutty the entire situation is regarding Donald Trump. Now, while Trump is doing all this nuttiness, while he's imagining new nicknames for Ron DeSantis and fantasizing about Carrie Lake being his vice presidential nominee, what is Ron DeSantis doing? Ron DeSantis is actually doing a hell of a lot. Ron DeSantis is the busiest guy on the planet. He just, he just was here in California doing a number of speeches, including at the Ronald Reagan library. He comes back to Florida to give his state of the state address which was actually very good. And um, he's fighting media attacks left, right, and center. Now he's trying to get Novak Djokovic into the country so that he can play in the Miami Open tennis tournament. This is another topic I referred to in episode number 38, where 
somehow Novak Djokovic is still in March of 2023, well after a year, after we know that the vaccines do not tr- stop transmission, after he has gotten COVID not once but twice and has natural immunity, he's not being allowed into the country because of this absolutely asinine federal regulation preventing people who are unvaccinated from coming into the country. Even though he's the number one tennis player in the world, he was prevented from playing in the U.S. Open. He was allowed to play in the Australian Open. For God's sakes, we are now more insane than Australia. He wins the Australian Open. He gets his number one ranking back, and he wants to play in Indian Wells. He can't do that in California. Of course, no one's fighting for him in in the tennis establishment, the media sports establishment, certainly not in California. Gavin Newsom's not going to fight for him to be able to play in, in, in Indian Wells. And so he had to withdraw from Indian Wells. But I guess DeSantis still thinks there's a chance that he can play in the Miami Open, and he's actually doing something about it. He's written a letter to the President of the United States trying to clarify whether or not it would be okay, I'm paraphrasing here, okay for for Djokovic to come into the country via boat. Now, I don't know how much of this is a publicity stunt. If it's a publicity stunt, it's a great one. <laughs> I mean, it, it does smack a little bit like the, the Martha's Vineyard thing where, uh, you know, he sent illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard last summer. Um, but my God, how awesome would it be if he could get Novak Djokovic into the country via a boat into Florida and uh, be, allow him to play in the Miami Open? I mean, that would just be tremendous. And I think it's a brilliant political maneuver, regardless of whether or not it actually works. But in theory, you could see where this would work because <laughs> because there's all sorts of ways you can enter this country, <laughs> most of them technically illegally, without being vaccinated. And once you get in here, there's no rules of, in most cases about what you can do and can't do while you're unvaccinated, including playing in a tennis tournament. <laughs> so I would love to see this actually come to fruition. I don't know if it will or if it won't, but that's where we are on that. And uh, I'll certainly update you if anything happens on that front. Uh, similarly, uh, I have to mention that <laughs> It's just so amazing how broken the news media is, especially on the issue of COVID. So we've had nothing but revelations in the last several months. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Justifying and vindicating people like me who were on team reality, team common sense, uh, where the experts have turned out to be wrong about almost everything with regard to COVID, right? We've documented that time and time again on this podcast. And yet somehow, The Washington Post published a column by Jennifer Rubin, who until the Trump era was their quote-unquote conservative columnist. Now, she was never a real conservative, but she was a a Republican, a mild Republican, which by Washington Post standards means that she's basically a right-wing whack job. Well, she's now become an extraordinarily obtuse, virtue-signaling leftist who is now used as for whatever street cred she may still have, which is basically zero on the right 
to do the bidding for the left. And she wrote a column attacking, get this, right wing slash Florida response to the pandemic. (laughs) This You can't make this up. It's unbelievable. And I mean, it was just so unbelievable bullcrap. And 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 I I guess all it would some I don't want to get I don't even want to justify it with getting into the details of it, but here's the the bottom line when it comes to this data, right? You this is this data has always been easily manipulated with regard to COVID, but here's my bottom line when I when I combat these people. Here's how we know that so-called right wing or conservative views anti you know establishment pro contrarian views on covid were vindicated by reality number 1 florida and new york ended up with exactly the same number of people almost to the oh, the number the same number of people who died per million and that's without without controlling for age florida is much older than new york so Right there, game, set, match. You compare New York to Florida. Florida does exactly the same in the overall data and much better when you control for age. Number two, why wasn't California the best? California did better than average, although I have a theory on why that was. I think it's because California had a whole bunch of deaths early on that weren't even counted because we didn't even know we had COVID yet. But I don't know that for a fact. I think it's a rational theory. But anyway. Okay, why didn't California do the best? California was the most restricted. Why did Utah and Alaska do much better than California when it came to deaths per million? And here's the biggest issue. And this is one that the other side can never address. And that is this. If you were right, if you were right about mitigations actually preventing deaths, forget about all the collateral damage, which is massive, massive, and completely underreported in catastrophic ways by the media that's invested against this narrative that they were totally wrong in their reaction to the COVID panic. But if you were right over three years with this kind of data where we are testing people in unprecedented fashions and where we are counting everyone who dies as a theoretical COVID death over three years, there would be no debate about this the data would be overwhelming. It's a lot like masks. If masks worked, we would see it overwhelmingly. There would be no debate by this point. Instead, all we get is a bunch of statistical noise where you can make almost any argument you want. You know why? Because it didn't matter. It was all a matter of luck. It was a matter of timing. It was a matter of the way you did the statistics. It was a lot of things that we didn't even understand. It had nothing to do with human, or almost nothing to do with human behavior. The the, the data didn't get better when we behaved better. It didn't get worse when we behaved worse. There's no indication of that. So the Jennifer Rubens of the world still are trying to make this argument by manipulating the data and making Florida look worse than they really were, not controlling for age. Folks, if they had an argument, there wouldn't be an argument because it would be overwhelmingly obvious and it's not. And that doesn't even get us started on all the collateral damage. And one of the things that I've, I've felt has created the most collateral damage that never gets any discussion at all in the news media is the issue of masks. 
the collateral damage on masks, everyone says, oh, it's just a mask. What's the big deal? It's a minor inconvenience. Oh, really? Oh, really? Um, well, first of all, there's a massive environmental impact. <laughs> forget about the annoyance. Forget about the, the, the problems caused in schools and learning when especially young kids are forced to mask. But the environmental impact, I mean, it's just astonishing that I, I live in a state where I can't get a plastic straw in a restaurant and I can't get a plastic bag at a grocery store, but we put billions of masks in the trash that were completely useless. And, and no one ever talks about this. But there's another element of the mask issue that got illustrated in a, in a way that, once again, the media has ignored in a way that if they wanted to, they could make an absolute mockery of. And that is, get this, folks, the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, actually made a public statement this week, where in response to a spike in crime, he has told store owners, get this, folks, he has told store owners to make sure people do not enter your store with a mask on. (laughs) Do not enter your store with a mask on because it's a crime problem. Because obviously, when people enter a store with a mask, it is far easier to get away with crime. Because even if there's video, you can't identify the person. Some of us were saying this three years ago, or almost three years ago, when we started with the mask madness, that one of the many elements of the collateral damage here, the unintended consequences, is that it would be far easier for crimes to be committed. There's a reason why. You don't allow people in your store with masks. So I went into a bank wearing a mask that was from V for Vendetta movie. You know, the the movie where it's become associated with the group Anonymous, where it's a very menacing type of mask. And my my mask was patterned after the main character from the movie V for Vendetta. And I'm wearing a baseball cap and I'm wearing sunglasses and I'm wearing this ridiculous mask, which I hate. But basically, I wore the V for Vendetta because there's a theme in that movie that is actually it was made well before COVID. But you could interpret it in retrospect as being very anti-COVID hysteria or tyranny. So that my mask was actually political. <laughs> it's the only reason why I would wear it. So I'm going to the bank wearing a hat and glasses and my V for Vendetta mask. And the teller compliments me on my mask. And I'm thinking, if two years ago I had come into the bank wearing a hat, glasses, and a V for Vendetta mask, they would have taken me away in handcuffs. (laughs) And rightfully so. But this is the insanity. And yet, despite the fact that this exposes what a total fraud the whole mask thing was in so many ways, there'll be no media mockery of this. There'll be some on the right and on social media, but no media mockery. Mockery, because this is this is this is a smoking gun moment. You're telling us not to wear masks in stores. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. And similarly, also in New York City, the TV show The View has now finally ended their audience mask mandate. How hilarious is that? The View 
has ended their mask mandate after almost three years. How elitist is that? So these ladies go in, five of them sitting, usually five of them, sitting as close together as possible with no mask in a very enclosed studio. I have been on The View. I believe they're still in the same studio they were when I was there. It's not a large studio. These people are all on top of each other. They're on top, very close to the to the hosts themselves, and they've been forced to wear their stupid masks for almost three years. Well, now, finally, for some reason, the magic moment has occurred, and The View has ended the mask mandate. You, there's nothing there's nothing that can illustrate just how dumb those people are than that but uh, i'm basically i'm sure i could come up with something if i tried but that's as good an example as you're going to get today all right um i want to shift gears now to since i promoted it at the beginning of the podcast something that happened on espn that was a rather dramatic security breach on the issue of race And I'm not really sure how or why this happened, but wow, did it get a lot of play on social media because, you know, it was basically man bites dog. It was that unusual to happen on ESPN. But it occurred on the show First Take, which is dominated by Stephen A. Smith, a black man who's basically a carnival barker who's become very, very popular because he's he's a mad a madman. He's also a fraud. He's he's ducked me for years uh, on the uh, Penn State Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal where he was totally wrong. He's been totally wrong about so many things, but he's very, very popular. He's entertaining. I'll give him that. And uh, it, this didn't have anything directly to do with him, though. A panelist on the show, Kendrick Perkins, who is a black man, had made the allegation that the voters, he didn't do it directly, he did it indirectly, but it was clear what he meant, that the voters for the NBA, NBA basketball, that their their MVP award were racist because the three people who were the least accomplished recently to win the MVP award, I don't know why sportscasters care so much about this kind of stuff, the MVP awards, but they do. Gives them something to talk about. But the MVP award in, in the NBA is a big deal to, to media people. And the last three to win it in, in what Perkins perceived to be an un, uh, the least accomplished fashion statistically all happened to be white. And he basically said, you do the math on that. You, you decide why it is that the, the three guys most recently who didn't have the best statistics, who won the award, uh, are white. And this is all amidst speculation that that it could happen again, that a white guy, although not an American white guy, a a white guy could win the uh, NBA award again. So that happened on one day. And then I think it was the next day or might've been a couple days later, JJ Redick, who was a white guy, uh, comes on the show and he does a little bit of virtue signaling right off the top by saying how honored he is to be on the show. (laughs) But then to his credit, he goes after Kendrick Perkins and ESPN on this issue of racial narratives. And uh, it was kind of stunning that, especially as a white guy, he felt like he could get away with it. I mean, I got to give him credit for his guts. I mean, Stephen A. Smith is right there. Kendrick Perkins is right there. They're not not in the same studio, but they're all on the same show at the same time from, from remote locations, it appears to be. And here's what Reddick uh, said. And then the voice you're going to hear 
vigorously objecting is Perkins claiming that he didn't do what Reddick said he did, even though he obviously did. And here's what that sounded like on ESPN. It is an honor to be on this desk every day. It really is. But what we've just witnessed is the problem with this show, where we create narratives that do not exist in reality. The implication, what you are implying, that the white voters that vote on NBA are racist, that are they, they favor white people. You I just not, said that. I you ju- not, yes, you did. I yes, did you did. Not, did. Yes, you did. That is exactly what you implied, Kendrick Perkins. That is exactly what you implied. Secondly, not, hold on, did, hold on. I did not call. I stated the facts. I stated the facts. And you're not about to sit up. We all know what you implied the other day. We all know what you implied just now. Hold on. I stated it. It's the facts. It's the facts. It's the facts. Now, Perkins was obviously very, very upset because he was being called on the carpet for something that he had obviously done. And and, and I, maybe he was regretting it or he didn't want to be called out or he's, he was completely shocked and not used to being called out because let's face it, especially on ESPN, if you're a black guy, you can say almost anything you want about race and you're not going to get any pushback. I mean, that's that's basically what the entire uh essence of the of the network is i mean so much of what espn does is about bitching about racism and even when it's not really there and kudos to jj reddick for calling that out and again as a white guy you don't have much protection especially not a really super famous white guy you don't have a lot of protection now as far as i can tell there's not been any Maybe major repercussions, at least as of this taping for Reddick. I don't know whether he got any kind of permission to do this. It didn't seem as if it was planned based upon Perkins' reaction to it. But Reddick is right. I mean, not everything is about race. But in, it's amazing to me that in sports, almost everything is about race now. I mean, my God, I love sports documentaries. I love sports documentaries. I love documentaries. I love sports. I love history. It is almost impossible to find a sports documentary, whether it's 30 for 30 on ESPN or on HBO or anywhere else. It's almost impossible to find a sports documentary that does not at least touch on the issue of how racist things are against black people and how uh, white people have massive advantages because of, of racism at least in some way, shape or form. I mean, it, it comes into almost every possible story that it could. In fact, the I laugh because I actually found one documentary that did not do this. And it was about white female skier Lindsay Vaughn. <laughs> they couldn't figure out a way to inject race into the Lindsay Vaughn story as a white female skier. And I kept thinking, I kept waiting because I'm thinking they're gonna eventually talk about the fact that she was dating Tiger Woods. And that, that somehow this is going to allow them to get into the issue of race and that somehow she was subjected to racism because she was was dating a black guy. Well, they didn't they didn't do that. They, they showed great restraint in the HBO Lindsey Vaughn documentary. But it just pervades every element of the coverage. And it's just so tiring and it's just such bull crap. And it, it's obviously absurd. Can we just stipulate? And this happens all the time. It just happened to a coach at Texas Tech University. He just got suspended for using a biblical quote that was perceived by a player as being racist. Can we just stipulate that if you're a 
lifelong basketball coach, or if you're a, a lifelong uh, uh, member of the media that covers basketball or football, that you're probably not a racist, that we can, we can start from that position. That If you were really a racist, how and why would you be a lifelong basketball coach at, at the top level or a member of the media at the top level? One, you wouldn't be interested in doing that. And two, you wouldn't be able to, to fool everybody for that long. And yet we immediately... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Presume everything is racism. And so the idea that NBA media voters are racist against black people in the MVP voting. It's just, it's just nuts. It's insane. Um, but that's the world we live in. And, um, you know, I, it was, it was remarkable that Reddick did what he did and it got a lot of play in social media, especially among the conservative anti-woke elements of say Twitter. And I found this to be very similar to what happened with regard to Chris Rock and his Netflix special. Now, the Netflix special on with done by Chris Rock was interesting from a media perspective because Netflix aired this live. And I, I found it kind of telling and interesting that that created a lot of buzz. And of course, someone of my age, 55, you know, back in the day in the 70s and 80s, everything was live or, or I, mean, what, no, I shouldn't say everything was live, but I, obviously when it came to, to events, you only had one shot to watch it. That's what I mean by this. It was on once. You couldn't tape it. You couldn't DVR it. You didn't even have the VHS machines at the time. Most of the, until the, I guess what, mid late eighties. And, um, and the reality was you had one chance to watch something. Now that's not even the case with regard to the Netflix special, because as soon as it was, as it was over, it was available to play at your convenience if you have Netflix. But just by virtue of the fact that it was airing live, created some buzz and created this anticipation that, wow, you know, obviously what we're going to see is not going to be edited. And that creates excitement because you don't know what you're going to get. Because anything that's edited and taped, you know that inherently, uh, you know, someone, if something really dramatic happened, they might take it out if it wasn't planned. And so... There was a lot of anticipation because of that, and obviously also because it was the first time that Rock was doing something like this since Will Smith had slapped him across the face at the Oscars last year. And this was done the weekend before the Oscars, which are scheduled, obviously, to occur this upcoming weekend here in the Southern California area in Los Angeles. And so for that, there was a lot of buzz. There was a lot of anticipation. And... I, I like Chris Rock. I, I actually was fired. <laughs> it's always a John Ziegler connection. I was fired in Nashville, Tennessee from a radio show in the in 1997 because I basically quoted a Chris Rock comedy stand-up routine that was very famous at the time that dealt with the issue of race. I was dumb in the way that I did it in retrospect, but the rules were very different back in 1997, <laughs> over a quarter of a century ago. 
than they are now. Uh, and you know, I, I was dumb in what I did. I didn't do anything malicious. Um, and I don't think I did anything wrong, but I also understand that the world we live in, the rules don't make a lot of sense even back in 1997. But so that's my history with Chris Rock, even though I didn't blame Chris Rock for it. I do think that he, at times he's very funny. I like him in a lot of the, 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 the kids movies that he's been a voice actor for. And, um, I, I wanted to watch it because I was curious what he was going to say, not really about the Will Smith thing. Cause I've actually taken, I've been a little bit surprised by his take on that, where he's, he, I thought he was going to say bygones or be, or bygones. And, you know, my, my fellow black guy, you know, we, we, we hugged it out and we're all okay. Kumbaya. He, he's gone the exact opposite direction. And I don't begrudge him for that. I was just a little surprised by that given Remember, when the Will Smith thing happened, the re- initial reaction from the crowd at the Oscars was to give him a standing ovation when he won the Oscar just a few minutes later. And I thought, oh, my gosh, is this going to really be the reaction of Hollywood? That was their unrehearsed knee-jerk reaction was to applaud him with a standing ovation. And then that's changed ever since. And I think that Will Smith's career is in great jeopardy right now, partially because of Chris Rock's Netflix special. But the reason why this is interesting, especially in comparison to what J.J. Reddick did on ESPN, is that what Chris Rock did was is being perceived on the right among conservatives. And I'm talking about like Ben Shapiro, Sean Hannity, Adam Carolla, Glenn Beck, and The Blaze. I've seen all these types of people praising and championing what Chris Rock did on this Netflix special. And I'm like, what did they watch? And maybe their standards are much lower than mine. But see, I'm always looking at the standpoint of, okay, what can happen in comparison to the freedom that someone has? And Chris Rock was in a unique position in that special. It's live. He's already got the moral high ground because of the Will Smith situation. It's Netflix. So he can say anything he wants. Plus, he's obviously black and he gets more uh, uh, of a a freedom from that because he can't be as criticized as certainly a white male could be, a straight white male. So from every perspective, Chris Rock has more freedom of speech than almost anybody you could possibly imagine imagine in that moment. Again, because it's live, it can't be edited, it's Netflix, uh, it's got all sorts of anticipation. He's got the Will Smith thing backing him up, making him kind of a sympathetic victim. And he's a black celebrity. So he can go to town if he wants to. And the people on the right have perceived what he did as being anti-woke. And I'm like, what? That, that is not at all what I saw. I saw from the perspective of what I just said about how much freedom he theoretically had that his special was the ultimate proof of just how powerful wokeness really is and how almost impossible it is to fight back against. Even under these circumstances, the unique circumstances that Chris Rock had to his benefit, because every time he pushed back against wokeness, even a little bit, he had to apologize beforehand. I mean, I'm talking every single time he had the virtue signal And it was, it was exhausting. I mean, every time he was going to go down a path and you could tell the way he was doing it. 
that he would set it up by, you know, by proving his virtue and his liberalness and how he's down with wokeness. He even said he am down with wokeness. I think that's a direct quote at one point. How does the guy who say I'm down with wokeness get portrayed in the right wing media as, as fighting against wokeness? And, and so much of this is about, I guess, clips either being taken out of context, people not watching the whole thing or only seeing what they want to see. And I'll give you one, I think really good example. A lot of people love the fact that he went after Meghan Markle, obviously uh, Prince Harry's wife, and particularly interesting because obviously Meghan Markle and Prince Harry just had this massive Netflix special. So he's on the same network that paid you know a lot of money for Harry and Meghan's uh, publicity tour documentary where they beg for their privacy. And I'm no fan of Meghan Markle. And it does appear as if Chris Rock went after her, but he doesn't really, he actually goes after her in, a, in kind of a, a magician's sort of way where there's a lot of hocus pocus. And when you, it, it seems like he's going after her, but he's really not. In fact, he justifies her being a racial victim. He doesn't say she has no right to be a racial victim. He justifies it. In fact, the only way he really goes after her is to say, uh, that she should have known that she was going to be the victim of racism because obviously the royal family is you know basically the originators of colonialism and and of racism and they're all white people of course they're racist against her because she's I guess plausibly black uh, uh, and so I'm like how does how is that a fight against wokeness how is why are conservatives rallying around this? Because he really, he actually justified her victimhood on the basis of race, even though I don't believe that's justified at all. He did a lot of other things that were, I found to be uh, troubling. And and I realize he's not a, he's not a news commentator, but comedy has now basically become almost news and journalism. And we've seen, my God, Bill Maher has been an incredibly influential voice when it comes to fighting against the the COVID insanity. But, um, for instance, he he tried to compare, with regard to cancel culture, Michael Jackson to R. Kelly. Now, as someone who studied the Michael Jackson uh, allegations very carefully and believed them to be false, I was offended by this one because Michael Jackson was acquitted and R. Kelly was not. And so those are not a, analogous situations, even if you somehow believe that Jackson is guilty, which I strongly believe that he is not. So that was, I thought, weird. But then the other thing that happened where I'm really baffled by why conservatives are embracing Chris Rock, and he even got some credit for this, which is just mind-blowing to me, is that he talked about how he's very pro-choice, but that he knows that abortion is killing babies, but that he's very much in favor of killing babies, even up to the age of four. Now, I realize he's trying to be funny. And there's some funny elements to that. Again, I get it. It's comedy. But if you're going to praise him from a political perspective, this is a guy who went out of his way to brag about how many babies he has killed. That is not an exaggeration. It's not hyperbole. That's what he did on this show. And this is this is something the conservatives are going to praise? Not to mention the, he also revealed a lot of weird stuff about his own kids Maybe the most conservative thing he did, which was he told a very self-indulgent story about how he asked the principal of his 
daughter's school to kick her out of the school because otherwise she was going to be a spoiled brat for the rest of her life. And he pretended that this was the first time that he had ever divulged this to anyone. I didn't believe that, but I guess it's theoretically possible. But as a, as a father of two daughters, he, he really went down a dangerous path in what he was revealing about his kids. He threw his own brother under the bus with regard to uh, views on transgenderism the Will Smith thing, he uh, you know, he revealed some stuff about uh, Jada Pickett, Pickett Smith that um, I didn't know, I guess, apparently is true. The media has tried to ignore that, um, but it certainly indicated to me that the, that this was what happened at the Oscars was not an isolated situation, that this was brewing for a while on a lot of different fronts. And look, he, he, has, he can do whatever he wants with regard to Will Smith because uh, what Will Smith did was wrong. Um, but even that, I thought the, his take on that was a, a bit overrated. So overall, I thought the thing was mildly amusing at times. It was in no way, shape or form conservative. It was in no way, shape or form nearly as anti-woke as being portrayed, nor nearly as anti-woke as it should have been. And let me give you one more example of what didn't happen that should have. I go back to the old John Ziegler thing. What, what doesn't get said is often more important than what does get said. Not one word about COVID. Not one word. Here's a guy who obviously knows that most of the COVID reaction was total bullcrap. This is a guy that got used by Governor Cuomo of New York for at a public event, at a press conference, where he and Rosie Perez were used as props, I'm guessing, to get minorities to adhere to the restrictions, where he came on the, to this press conference, both of them did, he and Perez, in hats, gloves, and masks. This was very early on in the pandemic when they were trying to sell the whole masks thing. And here he is being used as a prop, wearing a hat, mask, and gloves, none of which did anything at all to prevent anyone getting the virus. And so he had all sorts of moral high ground and street cred to be able to attack at least some of this insanity, because you know he has to believe that a lot of this is bullcrap, if not all of it, and not one word was said. And I'm sorry, when you have that kind of an opportunity where you cannot be censored, where you have the moral high ground because of the Will Smith thing, where you've got celebrity, you happen to be black, which gives you more freedom, and you're on Netflix Live, and you say nothing, that's cowardly. And that's not pushing out back against wokeness or insanity. Uh, That's actually uh, allowing that narrative to sustain itself. And I realize it's not his job to, to destroy those narratives. Um, uh, but there's also a lot of comedy opportunity that's been lost here. I mean, Bill Maher has done a like really good job with that. Russell Brand, uh, Woody Harrelson, not as well, but he tried on Saturday Night Live. There's a lot of potential comedy here. And part of what comedy used to be was sticking a finger in the eye of the establishment. Well, now it's the exact opposite. It's, it's, it's doing the establishment's bidding for it. And that's partially why the COVID insanity lasted for as long as it did, because comedians really let us down. And I thought Chris Rock was another classic example of that. One last thing I had mentioned, if you listened to the very, very end of episode number 38, that we were going to have an interview in this episode that I was really looking forward to, related to the Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State story, specifically that 
with a mainstream news media member who has investigated the case not as long, but at least as deeply as I have and was on the verge of reporting it in a big way for a mainstream news media outlet before that fell apart. I had promised that that interview would air in this episode. The interview was done as expected, and the interview was actually better than expected. Parts of it were uh, spectacular and, and incredibly telling on multiple levels, not just about that story, but about the news media in general. Unfortunately, there was a bit of a misunderstanding between me and the reporter about what would be done with that interview. And so I have to delay actually making part of it, uh, making it part of the podcast. When I'm going to be able to make it part of the podcast, I don't know. I have told this reporter who's terrible at procrastination and partially to give him a deadline for what his plan was to do next, because I have suggested to him that he tell his own personal story of trying to cover the Penn State Paterno Sandusky story and make that uh, the essence of his first public revelations on this. And he has thought that that's a good idea, but he's got writer's block on it. Partially why we did the interview was to try to unblock him mentally so we could finally get this done. I've given him till the end of April to finally get off his butt and do something. If that does not happen, it is my intention, assuming this podcast is still going on, to run this extraordinary interview then. But I wanted to update you since I I don't make promises that I can't keep. And if I can't keep them, I immediately explain why I can't currently keep them. But I do intend to eventually keep that promise because, as I said, the interview was done. It was amazing and so incredibly telling about just how broken the news media is in general and specifically on that story, which you can find out more about in my other podcast with the benefit of hindsight. That'll do it for this edition of The Death of Journalism, episode number 39. Please remember to share and uh, like this, comment on it, rate it, review it, uh, share it with others, because obviously we're not going to get any help from the news media sharing the word of this podcast. And we always uh, very much appreciate you sharing it on social media. If you do and you tag me, I'll make sure to share it as well. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, my name is John Zickler. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.